Welcome to Build and Learn. My name is CJ. And I'm Colin. And today we're joined by Chris Traganos, who now leads the developer and app store evangelism program at Amazon. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hey, CJ, Colin. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I think some people will know Chris and I had a close relationship working as colleagues at Stripe, but now Chris is at a different company, a different place. And so let's, uh, yeah, we'll, how would you reintroduce yourself in your new role in your new like situation? Yeah, for sure. Online coming through, I would say the last couple of years, I've probably known more as Trag, like on social media and stuff. Growing up with this like confusing Greek name, suddenly realizing people just call you by your Slack handle. Trag has actually been so helpful. It's just like short, whatever. So yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's a, it's an immigrant name. So yeah, so I'm Chris, I lead, I'm head of developer evangelism at Amazon. So that's like Amazon App Store and the different devices that folks buy from Amazon. So Fire TV, Fire Tablets, all that. And so, yeah, I got a, I got a global team of developer evangelists and trying really hard to get developers submitting and kind of building apps for Amazon customers. I joined recently, so I joined last, last fall, in the fall. So I joined in September last year in 2022. And prior to that, I led developer advocacy at Stripe where CJ and I met. And so I was there for about four years, really focused on the same things, right? Like trying to show developers how to kind of get the most out of the APIs and products we were, we were launching. And so that was that was also a blast. And prior to that, some other programs, Evernote, some crazy startups. Which is actually where you and I met was Evernote. Oh my gosh. I think we did a developer hackathon on DevPost yep. in like 2014, 2013. It was like this global online hackathon. I was doing a startup where we were trying to build like the one integration, the one API to roll all APIs. And so we would just go to API hackathons and try to use our own tool to like build stuff, you know, and just show that we were really good at API integrations in general. So we built an integration with Evernote where back in 2014, people, I don't think were really using it to store photos as much, but I used it pretty exclusively for photos. Yeah. And so we analyzed every photo in your Evernote and then took all the colors out so you could search your notes by color. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So we got to go to the Evernote developer conference and present on stage and do all that kind of stuff. And so I think we got I don't know if we, we didn't place actually, but, but we were in like the top, you know, finalists for that. So that was really fun. And that's when, it, when your name popped up, I was like, wait a minute, I know Chris or somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that was actually, that was a great time. Cause yeah, back then, you know, Evernote, I joined pretty early Evernote. It's the first kind of, I think hundred employees. We were in this tiny former auto garage in downtown Mountain View. Hilariously, we were subleasing part of that, part of our space to the original WhatsApp team. And when no we one. got too big, we like kicked them out of the office because we needed more space. And so I feel like that early Evernote stage was fun because, yeah, it was a note-taking app, but there was, it was basically Cold War technology for image recognition. And so we had handwriting recognition and we also had all these machine learning APIs where you could say like, show me recipes. So there was like all this stuff in the back end that we started yeah, seeing developers build these integrations that we like kind of treating a note as a, a, as a data store not just as a note that you could throw in mixed mixed media and notes. I think the space too, like this, when I think about when we started, there was no Apple Notes, there was no Google Docs. The thought of like real-time editing, like we take for granted the the things you can do with collaborators, both through APIs and like live in the app. And yeah, when people talk about like the like note syncing, like syncing documents now, I'm like, it is really, really hard. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so no, it's, yeah, that was, yeah, so I guess, I guess to that point, like I've, I've been in, Dev, I've been doing DevRel since 
about 29, 2010. Mm. And so my background's a web developer, really more on the front end, like designs, kind of part of that really old stage where Flash was dying and we kind of went all into web standards, a list apart, Jeff Zeldman, Eric Meyer, like really going that, that direction. And so I just totally fell in love with the concept of like, I can make any website look exactly like the comp, but using actual semantics and, and, and web markup. And so I did that for a while, but one of my jobs, I was working at Harvard. I was a webmaster for, that's like such an old word, <laughs> for harvard.edu. And half of that challenge was getting all these separate graduate schools to submit content to like the main website. Because um, the news is always like from the different schools. And so that was my first taste of DevRel where I'd run a monthly developer meetup where you're trying to like win hearts and minds across the university of like, hey, the business school should totally hook into like this new, this new former API we have to submit content. And if you do that, like it's great for your org. And so I got a taste of that and actually joined Evernote just as a senior web dev, like to, to run evernote.com. Um, and the way I fell backwards in the DevRel is they, there's like a API spec. It was like a PDF and they're like, hey, could you make like a, maybe like a slash developer section on the site for that. And I just fell in love with the concept of using Evernote in a way that wasn't originally intended, like as a backend. And I don't know, like just, I just fell in love with the idea of DevRel and it's been uh, way too long. <laughs> the burnout yeah, rate no, for DevRel is 18 months and, and I see folks come and go and I'm like, what is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah, it's funny. It's like, it sounds like, Part of part of that launching off point was events too. And I were you in the past claiming the the role as like hype man for the API, like API hype man, going to events and just trying to like get people excited about what they can build, which I think is a pretty critical part of, you know, advocacy and developer relations. But I'm I'm curious like what you think might be the most rewarding part. Is it kind of seeing devs adopt stuff? Is it seeing the success on the company side? Or yeah, like what 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 about that excites you the most? Yeah. So it, yeah, it's, it's a good point. So I would say what drew me to dev relations. So I remember being at a hackathon, like at Tufts University, like a decade or so ago. And there was, his name's Paul Lemire. And he worked at a company called Echo Nest, this small startup in Boston. And he just got on stage to all these like CS students, a couple designers in the room. And he just like showed their, they had a music API and they broke down like every song, like they could extract the beats per minute the course, the bridge, there was all this stuff. And he, he did this really tight demo. It was just a couple minutes, but he took like a popular R and B song. And then he, he fetched a Led Zeppelin, John Bonham drum track. And it was kind of wild. Cause it was like, yeah, it was all tech in the background, but what he was showing you is like, what was possible. And just to watch like myself and everyone in the room, it's like, it's just like that, uh, like the sparks of joy. You're like, oh my gosh, like that's like rethinking what you can do. And that's just, I think I really fell in love with DevRel as a tool. Then I would say over time, what was interesting is I know in Dev Relations, Dev Advocacy, there's this tension of, you know, are we here to, we get inspired. We love to teach people how to code, how to show people new things. But we also like, I don't know many DevRels who work for nonprofits. There's a couple, but most of us do work for a business. And so I think I've always tried to remind myself, like at the end of the day, we have to be like an accelerant for whatever like our our team and our company's top like goals are mm -hmm. and so um, it's that challenge of like your best work is when you're just passionate and you're loving the topic but you know you, you got to figure out how to get how to marry the individual advocates passions with and myself with uh, what is the most important thing we could be doing right now and so 
I think oscillating between massive companies and tiny hacky startups has helped me like kind of, I don't have the answer fully, but I guess the answer is it depends. So yeah, yeah, it's a good point on business versus like just focusing on the tech. I mean, APIs have only taken off. And so I think most DevRels today are probably doing something around an API product because companies built it. Now we got to get people to use it. We got to create the docs. We got to do all these things. In your role today, it sounds like you're trying to get people to build software that runs on devices, right? And hardware, whether it's tablets or, or Fire. How has that been different for you in terms of there's not necessarily like a REST endpoint um, that you're advocating for. It's more of this like there's a full software release cycle there of getting people to build full on apps there. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a good it's a good question, right? You think like there are in DevRel, like you can be working for you know an API focused company, API first company. You could be working for for Evernote. It was interesting, like the the revenue value was actually the more that devs like yourself were building these interesting personal scripts and use cases, or a lot of devs were taking Evernote and like building custom workflows for companies as a backend, that argument is like we could see the more you connected authorized third-party apps, the more likely you were going to stay paying for Evernote Premium. And you, you, you just, the stickiness factor was essential, right? Like if it is like Notion or any of these type of, Google for Works are great at corollary where I have everything connected into my, into Google workflows, Google Forms, like Google Scripts, automating things on different ends. And so the more it's just indispensable, it's just, it's a no brainer to pay for it. And I think shifting to Stripe, it was interesting. Like Stripe went 10 years, nine, 10 years without really much DevRel. Like there was DevRel where they were kind of like voice of the developer, really in sync with the product team, dog fooding, maybe like an annual conference, but a lot of Stripe, like the tools made sense, the docs were clear and devs were like, just give me what I want. As Stripe started building like a, a a network of apps on top of their platform, the storytelling got harder. And so I think it depends on the stage of the company. Like DevRel is just going to be different when you're a tiny startup trying to win big customers. And it's also going to be different like at an Amazon where, I mean, just imagine all the customers we have around the world, they are buying multiple Amazon products, Amazon devices. And so the, the thing we center on is like, how do we make sure our customers have like absolutely everything at like, in their hands, like being able to access their content. And so the developer, it's, it's broad, right? It's everything from massive companies that you use in entertainment all the way to like productivity apps that there's a lot of apps that like Fire OS is based on the Android open source project. And so like a lot of those apps you see are going to have a very similar experience to something on like Google Play with the difference of monetization. Like probably all of us have Amazon account <laughs> payment on file. So you can imagine the opportunity for something for Amazon devices and the app store is if you invest in bringing your app over into essentially a third party marketplace, you're getting in front of Amazon customers who are very eager for their favorite apps to also be on these devices. And so, yeah, it's fun. It's like, it's, it's, it's a mix. Cause there are the APIs are more like sign in, like authentication, like you're signing in with your Amazon account. There's a payments, like, so your payments on file, think like if you have like prime video, you're, you're ordering, you're buying in-app, in-app subscription is probably the big one, but also, yeah, like knowing did my package come. And so for me, it's like, it's a meaty, it's a meaty challenge. It's, I, I like it. it. I, at Stripe, definitely one upside is 
just the idea that it was API first, you almost were given too much. You were almost given so much information, like you as developers, like trying to figure out, okay, how do I stitch this up to get what I need done? And then switching to something which is like, at the end of the day, really what matters is that customers have a ton of awesome apps in their hands. They can use them. And so trying to make sure devs feel like that they're very successful, they have what they need. How does the strategy change like in terms of engagement with devs? Like I know, I just know the perspective of Stripe. Like this is the only place I've done advocacy and a yep. lot of, I would say our team leans pretty heavily on content. We do mm -hmm. engage with the community. We have like a strong product feedback cycle and we're very involved in the product, but leaning on content heavily to help increase awareness and adoption of the APIs, it has been pretty successful for us. Like how does that strategy change if you are standing up a new team mm -hmm. that is like advocating for an app store versus standing up, maybe if you're like, you know, advocate number one at a tiny startup that the, is like an API product. Like what, yeah. What are your kind of thoughts there? Yeah. Right. That's, it's, it's, it's a good flag. Like when I did DevRel, like at M.io, we're trying to like pitch a use case that wasn't in the market yet, like cross-platform chat, really trying to like half of it was advocating to Slack and Microsoft Teams and Cisco WebEx, like, Hey, like, this isn't a zero sum game. The more there's interoperability, the better. And we also happen to have pretty good gateways to sync it all. And so that was more like trying so hard to get, to get noticed, like trying to really build like developer fascinating to, you know, tools that devs are like, oh my gosh, this is saving me so much time. I think at Amazon, like Amazon customers, like I, I have confidence. There are so many customers across the world. They love and purchase tons of content, apps, devices all that. I think for us, one thing I didn't expect to be such a benefit is Amazon apps, apps in the Amazon app store. So think like your Fire TV, Fire tablet, any of those Echo shows that have screen, anything kind of like with a screen, those apps can be built with, so Android. So Android apps, most likely, you know, they'll work on Fire OS. React native developers, like if you're building anything where you can end up having an APK and end up built, if you've already built an app, like it's, the you get to segment it like, it's perfect if you already have a pretty solid app on other platforms, you know, app stores are becoming unbundled and, and we have the upside of we've been doing this for, we've been all in on the Android open source project for over a decade. And so for us, it's great because the use case is probably like, we've got tons of customers, we're on multiple platforms, we'd love to get in front of a very passionate customer base that is always looking for new apps. And so for that, it's more like we're going to DroidCon, we're going to React Native conferences, we're writing a lot of new content on, okay, how to take your React Native app and integrate our, our, our SDK for, for in-app mm. purchase, et cetera. So for us, it's like, I'm so used to, for, you know, for Stripe, it's like you got your Ruby crew, you got some like native device developers, but at the end of the day, like it's, it's payment architects and maybe like dev agencies that are really thinking deeply about payments. At Evernote, it was more like SaaS companies trying to think like maybe we also add an integration. At Message.io is mostly like interoperability chat, so IT departments. And so I think for me, it's been interesting of like, it's much broader applicable audience and the show don't tell things important. Like it's really helping devs understand the opportunity and then showing them like examples of how they can do it. Mm -hmm. through, through code samples and a ton of talks. We're submitting a lot of talks, like walking through Flutter, React Native, Android, Kotlin related use cases. And so, yeah, the polyglot aspect of this place is wild, but I love it. It's like, it's like me and my team, we're having a lot of fun right now. Like I haven't been a Microsoft Windows user for years. 
obviously VS code and some of those, you know, GitHub, I've, they've been bringing me back into their orbit, but right now, like I can install, so you can, you know, on windows 11 in the Microsoft store, you can install actually the Amazon app store, but any popular Android apps, you can install it and, and it's running like it's really performant in the battery. It's kind of like you're using Android apps, like your favorite productivity to do apps, but that were built for phones but or tablets, but you're using it on like a two gigahertz or more device. And so that's been interesting. It's like I have the Linux sub the Windows subsystem for Linux. I have like Ubuntu running when I'm testing some new betas we have. And I also have a ton of Android apps and they feel just like apps. It's, it's almost like a VMware or something, but it, it is more native than you would think in like a virtual machine. And so hmm. that's been wild to me because you're starting to get past like these apps live on this platform. These apps live on that platform. Like, yeah, it's when I'm, code. yeah, it's just code. And these processors kind of all have. Yeah, like the, the kind of lineage is coming back together of like, in the end of the day, it is just processing either on an ARM chip, ARM or Apple chip or uh, Intel. And so. Yeah, it's it's a fun time right now to like watch how these things play out for sure. Very cool. Is this is your new team? How is it organized? And also, like, are you under marketing? Are you under engineering? And yeah, like, I think there's a lot of benefits and trade offs depending on like where a DevRel team lands. And yep. so, yeah, I, I'm curious where your current setup is, and then maybe if you could speak to some of the trade offs of like where you put DevRel and like how that impacts things. And in some companies, like you report directly to the CEO, whereas like other places you might be buried under some sales or marketing team. Yeah, it, it, it's, it's, a, it's such a like a hot button topic because <laughs> I mean, folks have their, you know, their, I would say two things. People have their opinions on what dev, dev advocates are. Like for whatever good or bad experience they've had with a dev advocate, like <laughs> that is pretty much set in stone unless they're convinced otherwise in a different experience later. And I also think DevRel in marketing versus, so I've, I've, I've built DevRel teams under the CTO. Yeah. Directly under the CEO. I've been directly under partnerships and business development. I've been under marketing and at Stripe, obviously it was directly under engineering. And so it's kind of wild, like your tactics and your focus shifts a little, but I do think you're still really fighting on behalf of the developer experience and you're acting as developer zero. So yeah, at Amazon, it's interesting. It's, it's it's whole business units, right? So under Amazon devices, like the one benefit, it's different than I've done DevRel anywhere else. Whereas, you know, my colleagues are, I got folks in business development, like they're working with the top partners, right? I am working directly with all the TPMs and lead engineers, like on the SDK feature. Um, and so I, I don't know, I guess in a big company, I just assumed more silos. But I'm working hand in hand with folks because we kind of all roll up into the business unit, which is like apps and partnerships. And so you don't have that like centralized model where one part of the company is this, one part of the company does that. It's like, you know, we're delivering a unit and that includes everything from the hardware to the software to the backend infra. And so that's been surprisingly awesome. So and some of the folks I'm working directly with, my manager, like they all have backgrounds in like, you know, the Xbox gaming unit. I've got some folks who worked at like sports gaming, big partner apps, like some media brands. And so this is kind of wild because you know, obviously in DevRel, you're like usually an API team or you're, mm -hmm. it's a like coming from SaaS and going into this, it's been interesting. Yeah, Roku, it was, we were DevRel and we worked hand in hand every day with the SDK team in engineering, but we were under partnerships. And so it was kind of like we had the solutions architects 
that would help us sometimes, but pretty much we were really working on like go to market, like launches for new features, building a ton of sample code at Evernote. It just oscillated like Evernote in the beginning. It was just like a, a pet project of the CEO and it was under, I think we reported up into head of platform, the API team in engineering. And then after a couple of years, we moved to partnerships where it shifted to like, it went from really focusing on change logs, updates, like API reliance to what are the most important things we can do content and code samples mm -hmm. wise that would move the needle. And so that was more opportunistic. Like how could we get apps that consumers love to integrate with us? Um, and then, yeah, so it totally depends. Like, and I think what I've noticed is some, some dev advocates will be vitriolic about being under marketing. Like, and I get mm -hmm. it. Like, I get it too. Like if you've gone to, if you have a CS degree or if you've worked your butt off to like learn, learn your, learn code yourself. I totally get this thing. Like, oh, like a lot of the hangups in our industry is like people's fear of self-identity, like mm -hmm. that burning insecurity. I think that fuels a lot of that dev advocates of like, what if people know that I'm not legit or whatever things mm -hmm. we tell ourselves. And what I've noticed is what's helped me at least is like, I'm very comfortable with ambiguity. Like I know, like, I don't necessarily know, like, am I in Eng? Am I in BD? Am I, but I do know like what we have to get done like for the next six months to a year. And that's worked great for me is because a lot of the arguments will be like, like red flags for me is when someone was like, we need to know really clear lanes, kind of like we need to know exactly what you can and can't do. Or if as someone in dev advocacy is doing it, you're like, mm, if you're doing that, then suddenly like the best dev advocates I know oscillate between content work, community efforts and product. And if you just say, oh, we're only top of funnel or, oh, we're only a really technical because we got to prove to people we're, you know, we are not your average advocate. Suddenly like your hangups are messing up. Like the community just needs what they need and mm -hmm. you're kind of making it about yourself. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a quirky, quirky industry <laughs> with a, with a boatload of characters for sure. Myself included. <laughs> In terms of keeping those advocates motivated and advocating for advocates, it sounds like that's like a big component to it is understanding what they want, how they want to operate mm -hmm. and, you know, moving from doing, just working on change logs that kind of sounded almost like busy work, right? Like oh, we're just going to keep focusing on change logs and making, you know, little fixes to the docs over like switching that to like, oh, let's do a bunch of video content or live streams or speaking at conferences. It, it definitely seems like keeping the folks motivated by giving them projects they're passionate about is pretty like a pretty proven track record of or like, you know, approach to having a successful team. But is there is there more to it than that? Kind of just giving people projects they want to work on? Yeah, I think, um, yeah, managing dev advocate or dev like SDK engineers, like however your team's formed, I get so much joy from it, but it is, I'm not gonna lie. It's definitely one of the hardest parts of my career for a couple of reasons. One is like, you have expectations from leadership on like what your team's going to deliver and leadership has a thought on your team should be focused on adoption or your team should really be focused on awareness and adoption. And others are like, you are the community team. What I've found is Keeping high performing dev advocates in in like convincing them to join your team, like courting them from other big companies is hard, right? Like there's one, which is pay is super variable based on region. It, it's getting better, but like based on region and based on the company. So like, that's one thing is this fear of like, 
oh my gosh, like what if I go to my next DevRel job and I'm like losing my engineering street cred and I can't get a software engineering job? I think a lot of it, people are probably going to roll their eyes, but the mentality I use as, so Stripe, I was an engineering manager for about 10 to 12 advocates, kind of global. They were all over. And the attitude I took when it took to managing them was kind of like a lot of the articles I've read about what it's like to manage Peloton instructors. And so when I think of it as like advocates they just by nature, you have to accept managing them is going to be different than managing an API heads down engineering team because they're putting themselves out there every day. They're giving talks, they're dog fooding, giving the product team a lot of feedback. Um, it is exhausting to like be out there, especially when everyone has comments and thoughts and opinions on what you are and aren't doing. And the way I think of it is like I do the phrase that sticks in my head is like there are on screen talent like they are putting themselves out there, there's an aspect of them of like, they are a narrative on top of our product, how they carry themselves in social media, the things they're passionate about, the things I wish like we can pretend that there's, there's boundaries between you, you know, your work life and your personal life. But as an advocate, unfortunately you do have folks making up their mind about what you are, what you focus on and really like what your out, you know, what your actual output and the things that you devote your time to. And so I think what I try to do is yeah, I spend a lot of time like when I'm hiring someone onto a team, I already kind of want to know like what motivates them. Is it building in public? Is it convincing themselves that they are still a competent engineer because their last company gave them a lot of hangups? Is it they got great stage presence, but they really want to take themselves to the next level in their mastery of building like app architecture? And so I think like I am very fluid where I am fine for an advocate to spike in community or to really go deep in product and almost be seen as like one of the leads for like some engineering project. I think what I try to do is motivate them in a way that it's just like intrinsic versus intrinsic motivation. It's so hard. Like if I just go to an advocate and tell them you are to do this by this day, top down style, it's, I don't know. I just, I personally that you don't get my best work. If it is just like, this is the task, this is your job, QA it or whatever. I think with advocates, you gotta try to marriage like for some time, your personal goals, company goals, my goals are gonna be aligned. I'm gonna help you. I'm gonna fight like hell to be an advocate for the advocates. I want you to get a bigger following if that matters to you. I want you to be able to go launch your own startup, be a dev instructor, whatever you wanna do. And I also kind of want you to like really help us get to the next level with what we gotta hit. And so for me, if it does, like, I really want to do a video guide, a video series on this, and I think this is how we can measure it, and, I, and this is going to help me work with products, I'm like, that's great. Whereas another dev might go, I think we really gotta, need to go deeper in our samples offering. And so what I try to do is, like, on a quarterly basis, like, dream big with each advocate, like, really trying to think of, like, the things that back in their head, back in their mind. And I'm also kind of bringing up nudges and things that would be helpful. And usually what we end up find, like landing on on a monthly cadence is um, kind of the areas they areas for growth and it's like ways they can put points on the board. I know it's a sports analogy. Sorry, that was a lot of talking. But yeah, I think a lot about like it totally depends per advocate, but the collective of the team, you tend to have everyone does spike in different areas, which if you average it out, that's how you end up with a world class dev advocate team, even if it's just like yourself right now, it's just like me and a, you know, we're a very small team, but I also know the show don't tell aspect is how you grow a team to the size it, it should be.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really interesting because you kind of touched on this idea that dev advocacy can be so many different things, even in one team, right? You have SDKs, which might be more someone's rolling up their sleeves and figuring out how do we generate these better? How do we make sure like, oh, our PHP one's not as good as our Ruby one. We're getting feedback. You're working with product to return that feedback to the team that's building those SDKs. You're helping people with content. You're doing all these things. I think we kind of touched on this in our episode with Lindsay Barrett about technical support and technical support managers. And there's this, you kind of touched on this as well, of worrying about losing their engineering chops or maybe even I'll just say dev advocacy almost seeing as like less than being an engineer when really, you know, I think there's a perception of that when really the job is just so different. It's just a different job with different skills and you need to be able to do some of that engineering. Would you recommend dev advocacy as as a path for someone getting into programming or do you recommend that they, you know, kind of go down the stint of be an engineer somewhere for a little bit and then head over into advocacy if that's something that they're interested in or or does it work either way? I would say that question is no no doubt the most polarizing conversation, like question that comes up in like folks who lead DevRel teams. I think we're, oh, I'm, I'll just be honest with you. I'm really torn on it because on one side, I have met tens of thousands of amazing developers that came to it. Like I met you a decade ago at a hackathon and now you're like the lead at an amazing developer first company. Like all of us start somewhere. Uh, myself, I started as a web developer, got invited, was asked by my company, can you fly to Brazil and run a dev event? And suddenly I fell in love. Like I, my eyes were open to, I absolutely love DevRel and dev advocacy. Where I'm torn is, I think a lot of companies go, okay, start off in dev, do a boot camp, do whatever, learn how to code build in public. And then eventually, like a lot of people will think like, it's kind of a way to get into development. I think what's tricky is it's double hard for these folks where they're trying to like learn how to code, but they haven't had a lot of lessons learned of like working side by side with engineers, with API architects, with different folks. And so I I guess where I'm torn is like, honestly, the crux of DevRel, the tension I feel is you know, that going back to the nonprofit question, are we here? Is our purpose to teach people how to code, how to get into the industry, sharing our personal stories? Like we're almost like influencer first approach, like which does open the door, which does bring more opportunities or is my job to really show developers who I know are judging and watching what I'm doing and will turn the live stream off if I can't load, like run a webhook uh, service. Like, am I trying to show them we are dead serious about like engineering excellence and we have your back and we know what the hell we're talking about? Where I'm torn is it does depend on the company. And so and it does, I guess, go back to the, the org question because I'm so proud of the folks that have gone into the industry and have like really like had a lot of launches and, and, and grew up into a role. But I also think developers, the audience is some of the most critical opinionated folks I've ever dealt with. And I know that if myself or someone on my team is giving a, a talk that the code hasn't been reviewed, we haven't dog fooded ourselves. It's a lot of, I don't want to say fluff's not the right word, but it's like really it's a backpack, no books, right? Like really low on content that could get a dev to take the action. I'm pretty critical of myself. And so that's, I think where I'm torn is, uh, yeah, the influencer based DevRel versus the building in public 
DevRel. And I think it depends on is the goal to get, I don't know. I, I, I don't want to be definitive on it because it really depends on the situation and the company. I, I feel like I can have a stronger opinion in context. Yeah. Well, I think this is similar to the paths that engineers have to take anyway. I mean, there's the whole, do I go down the manager track? Do I stay as an IC? But I think dev advocacy is another you know, branch on that as well. Whether you start there, you end up there. I think just looking from the sidelines, I think that it's not a very productive conversation to compare the two as to which one's better. I think they're just different and different people are going to be drawn to different things. And mm-hmm. so... We can let the internet debate this conversation. Well, I would have I started with this question if I knew it was so polarizing. Well, and I think on top of that, the, the, the other one you just touched on is also equally, I would personally say I've been pretty unconventional about the manager question. So at Evernote, like very, so I was, I was a web developer and then I became a developer advocate 10 so years ago when it was still, um, AWS was just coming out. It was kind of like a different, we were still, everyone was still like still figuring it out in the field, what the hell the job was. And so I very quickly grew up into a leadership role. I was like a director of dev relations. I was 25. I don't know. Yeah, I was 25. I had no idea what I was doing. And then I jumped into Roku where I came in as an executive. I was the youngest executive in their company. And it was very much like very away from the tactics. It was like, how are we going to develop the strategy to then roll out the details? And so you just think differently when you're developing hardware. You have to be waterfall. Like you have to ship this device for Black Friday. And so software decisions have to be made in the lockdown. There is no SaaS like, oh, we can push the button later. And so to answer like what I'm saying there is like, I went to this thing where because I work well with people, because I think I'm a pretty, I think fairly high empathy, high EQ, I care to a fault. I grew very senior quickly, too senior. And so actually at Stripe, I jumped back into IC. So it's like Stripe hired me as a developer advocate. Like I thought the job was cool. I loved the product. I had made an idiot mistake and turned down Stripe a decade before when they were like nine people. And so I was like, you know what? Yeah, I'd love to just go back to being a dev advocate. Like I felt overwhelmed by the strategy. And so that four-year Stripe process, yeah, the first year I was IC. Yeah, I stepped up eventually when they asked me to lead the team, but I have really appreciated every five years or so oscillating between senior IC and manager. Um, and I know that's not for everyone, but for my career, it's actually been great. Like I've had a lot of mentors older than I like tell me like there was that point in their career when they could keep going more senior, definitely golden handcuffs pay wise, but they lost that con Marie, like that Marie Kondo, like does your job, especially your technical job or dev or job give you joy. And I think like, I've benefited from being able to just shake it up. Um, and so for me, if some, like, I don't know, like I, I could see myself going back into a startup and going IC or like, you know, just like a team of one until it makes sense to grow it up again. What I will say is I not to put CJ on the spot here. So CJ, CJ and I were peers and then I became, I kind of took over the team and CJ ended up reporting it to me. And one thing I really appreciated about CJ was two specific things is he was very intentional about like, I am a developer advocate. I am a software engineer who also happens to be a dev advocate. And I think that was that authentic approach was really appreciated in the community. It's not one or the other. It's like, I'm going to keep my chops up and that's going to really help developers learn. The other thing I appreciated that most people as they're growing in their career have a hard time doing is like CJ, not to put you on the spot, but he was like, I want to stay in IC. Like I 
really want to stay in IC and I don't think the management track is right for me. And that honestly helped so much for someone to have that type of clairvoyance. Like most people don't get intentional like that. I don't know, CJ, if you want to touch on that at all. Yeah. I mean, I had a little bit of experience managing at a previous role and it was not a good fit. I had the awful experience of having to let somebody go. And that kind of just, yeah, I was like, I never want to do that again. I never want to be in that position again. And I, yeah, I love just getting into flow and executing on projects. And so, yeah, I think it's totally okay if you want to stay in IC forever. And it's also totally okay if you want to be a manager or if you want to like do this pendulum thing and swing back and forth. So that might be a good, good spot to wrap up. What do you say? Yeah, I really appreciate you both. And yeah, it's been fun to listen to the podcast and yeah, having you all as a conversational approach. Thanks a ton for joining, Trag. I know there's a million things that I've learned from you over the past several years. And so continuing to be able to just, you know, rack your brain has been has been great, even though it's been it's been a few months since we've we've had a chance to catch up. So thanks again. Really appreciate you coming on and yeah, everything that you've done for me in my career. Thanks for listening to Build and Learn. We will catch you next time. Bye, thanks. friends.